0: Welcome to the Collective Scope Podcast, where we talk to great leaders
1: who are influencing the next generation. Well, Hayden, welcome to the Collective Scope Podcast. Uh, Hayden is a generational expert, the author of Generational IQ. Uh, You've trained more than 30,000 managers and you're into church growth. You've helped churches add over 12,000 in their weekly attendance by helping churches Um, And what I'm probably most excited about is the subtitle of this book, Um, Christianity Isn't Dying, Millennials Aren't the Problem, and the Future is Bright. So why don't we start by helping us understand what are the different uh, generations still in America?
2: Well, you've got five now for the first time. We've never had to deal with five before. And, uh, you know, people who juggle People who juggle axes and chainsaws, they'll juggle three at most, but sometimes some of them juggle two, they'll juggle three, they never juggle five. And so the point is, five's just a lot. And uh, we've got traditionalists, and then baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, and nobody agrees on the name for the next one. Um, I just have given up and called them Gen Z, even though I don't think that name's gonna stick long term, only because. They're a big generation. Gen, Z, Gen X doesn't like their name either, but they're small, so they couldn't change it. Whereas Gen Z um, you know, sees the last letter in the alphabet, which means the world's gonna end because we got no more letters because no grandparent wants their kid in AA, that'd be the next generation. And uh, yeah, my grandkids AA, and uh, that's, that one's not gonna fly. And um, plus, millennials didn't like Gen Y, there were some surveys that showed that millennials like millennials the best and Gen Y the least of all possible names because it was a riff on Gen X. And Gen Z is now a riff on a name the millennials don't even like, which is a riff on a name the Xers don't even like. So I think we're probably doomed to call them something else. Um, uh, but in the meantime, Gen Z it is. So we've got five different generations right now in our society and in our churches.
1: So, so with that in mind, like, how do, how do we respond to that? That's a lot of people.
2: Well, we respond like people who juggle axes.
1: <laughs> that sounds dangerous.
2: It, well, it is dangerous. And so in the book, Generational IQ, and I, and, and I, and I wrote it, not my favorite title, um, but we couldn't figure out a title that covered everything we covered. So we cover how do you, how do, you, what do, you do with 20-something kids because families have never really had kids living at home. In their 20s, um, in significant numbers before. And I, as well as others, have that. And uh, so it's grad school, keeps my daughter, and as paying off sc- school loans and saving for down payment, keeps my son until Monday when he heads down to a job in Florida. Um, you know, it, it, having fully employed people, or as some parents complain in one of the chapters in the book called, What Do I Do With My 25 Year Old Who's Still Living in My Basement? Um, So we talk about we talk about a whole new dimension in parenting that is really making some believers wonder, what do we do with 20 somethings? You know, my uh, we raised our daughter in the church and yet she has friends with benefits. And so what do we do with all of that? And um, and then it also covers what do you do with churches? And then it covers the spiritual life of the different generations, how generational differences impact all that. Well, we couldn't find a name that fit everything well. So we just called it generational IQ. And um, um, maybe not the best name in the history of religious publishing.
1: Well, it, it made sense. Um, Carter, you're a millennial. That's so what they tell me. That's what they tell <laughs> you. So, I mean, as a millennial.
2: All your fault, yeah. Carter.
1: Right. You that's what they keep saying. They the world, say that too.
2: wrong with the world.
1: Yeah. Carter's sort of the exception though. He's married and he's moved out and he's, he's married, not yeah. living in the basement of his parents' house. I
0: left to go to college and I never went back. You know, it's, Carter. It's,
2: what's wrong with you?
0: you I know,
2: know. And actually, Carter, there's a couple of pieces to this. People who go to religious colleges marry four and a half years younger than people who don't go to religious colleges.
1: That's that's, that's an me. astounding fact. So. Uh, you know,
2: it is an astounding fact, and it's one of those things because they hear a little passage in in uh, that Paul wrote that it's better to marry than better to marry than to burn. Than to burn. <laughs> <laughs> a little more often than uh, uh, maybe other people yeah. do.
0: <laughs> yeah, if I had a dollar for every time my mom said that, I would have paid for the, I would have paid for the wedding myself.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Makes complete sense. And so, um, matter of fact, the Lincoln Christian University that my kiddo, two of my kiddos went to, they actually do sessions on why you shouldn't marry as early as you're thinking about.
1: Oh, so why, why is that?
2: Well, just because sometimes kids are like, I feel the heat. And so maybe we should marry. Yeah. And um, um, there is some very inter- research, interesting research on divorce. Um, millennials, Carter, are actually less divorced and less likely to divorce than previous generations.
0: That's good news. That's good to hear.
2: For a couple of reasons. The first one is people who are university or college educated, that, that drops your chances of divorce significantly. Of course, then if you're religious and uh, that increases your chances of staying married as much as a college education. So, you know, if you, if you if you fell in love with when you were in high school and got married in your early 20s um, and you're both dedicated to God, that significantly increases the chances you'll stay married. Um, people who marry after 25 are more likely to stay married than people who marry under 25. So that's one of the reasons why the millennials are uh, are – have half the divorce rate that the Generation Xers had at the same age, it's because they often marry later in life. And, um, you know, people people have fewer regrets later if they wait longer. Sorry about that part, Carter. The, right. Um, yeah, people have fewer regrets if they, if they wait longer. There's less of a, oh, I jumped into this when I was young. I wish I would have made another choice. Now, I married at 22. And um, Mrs. Shaw has more than once thought, Man, I probably should have made another choice, I'm sure. I'm sure.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> that, that thought process. Okay. That's,
1: that's uh, yeah, neither here nor there for us, but, but you guys can work that out. Um, so, Hayden, there's this, this sort of overriding statement that makes its rounds every so often that we're one generation away from the church dying. You in the book and say that's not the case. So, it,
2: it, it's not. Um, Now, it it doesn't mean that churches don't die, but it's incredibly difficult to kill. Now, you probably know, um, and many of your listeners will know church history, that the church was just as vibrant in the Middle East, in the Eastern church was vibrant in China, and um, um, was snuffed out. Largely, um stuffed out uh stuffed out but the, the, the key thing is you can so you can with persecution you can wipe a church out in a couple of you know, two or three generations but what what really interested some of the early explorers in Japan is how there were secret christians even after mm-hmm. brutal persecution that movies have made um you know have made much of even after brutal persecution there were still christians who were secretly um, secretly worshiping and especially Catholic Christians who were secretly worshiping and so they didn't kill it didn't kill Christianity Japan. it largely removed it but it didn't kill it for um, centuries and so the point of it is it's um, in terms of its influence in terms of its um, impact yeah you, it can fade dramatically in a generation but you know we're one generation away from extinction is as um, um, Oh, I forget which sociologist it was now on the spot who wrote in Christianity Today about lying with statistics is still lying. (laughs) It talks about how Christians can be—pastors especially can repeat something that they heard. And um, and then—and that's one of the best—that's one of the—that was the example they used in the article of misapplied statistics that were one generation away.
1: So then what's the good news? If that's not the case, what is— the good news you say you know the future is bright for the church what's the good news
2: well the good news is that church attendance is is down over what it was 50 years ago but not substantially it's not down half over what it was people are like oh people don't come to church anymore they don't come as regularly to church anymore so it, you know the uh, even dedicated christians are missing uh, a a weekend month. Um, Now that we live in a society that no longer protects Sundays, um, if you've got a kid in a travel team or a kid in a speech team, there may be events on Sundays. And so, Sunday is another day of the week in many, in many communities. And so, even if you're dedicated, you're gonna go, oh, well, hey, we're, you need to play. And so, you'll miss that week and watch it online. And so, it's a different kind of experience at church, no doubt about it. And so that's part of why attendance numbers go down is that people don't attend as frequently and they'll drop the attendance down. But in terms of it, a church, attendance is, a church attendance is not down significantly over what it was um, um, 50 years ago. It's no harder to, raise your, to pass on your faith um, than it was. Statistically speaking, it is no harder. Now, my mother-in-law is a big listener. She lives downstairs. Uh, we live upstairs and she's a, that sounds bad, doesn't it? Like we keep our mother-in-law in the basement. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> and we, actually do,
2: we actually do our mother, my, my mother-in-law lives in the basement, but it sounds like we slip her soup and a, and some crackers <laughs> under the door. Well,
0: well, there's we, like a cat door and you right. just slide the food <laughs> in through
2: it. And we let Betty out to go to church once a week, just so people think we're good. To
1: suspicious. Her. Yeah.
2: Yeah. She's in a, she's in a fine walkout basement with her own exits and ability to, uh, ability go. to. Anyway, she came upstairs and said, I don't agree with your interview with Moody. She's a big fan of Moody Radio there in Chicago, where we live. And so I said, "Why well, I said, it's a whole lot harder raising my grandkids today than it was when we were raising my kids. I said, well, statistically speaking, it is exactly the same in the likelihood that you will pass on your faith. And that's great news um, that families, if, they, if families learn what it takes to pass on their faith, and I cover that in the chapter on how do you, how do you pass on your faith to your kids? Yeah. Uh, if families learn what the research shows, they can have as high a possibility as people did 40 years ago. Um, more than that, churches will have to do it differently. We're probably not going to do revival meetings and get Gen Z to come to church. And we're probably not going to do a lot of Bible thumping. And Bible thumping used to be, you're going to hell. You you part your hair down the middle, you slick it back, and you hold the Bible up over your head, and you say, you're going to burn, baby. You're going to burn. <laughs> Not burning that we were talking about earlier, but you're going to burn. And um, today, um, the conversation is, well, the Bible says. And uh, just in USA Today, you know, that's the newspaper delivered free to my hotel room, so that's my newspaper of choice. Um, they posted in, you know, a, a letter in where somebody had talked about, you know, the Bible being infallible. And it's just a little comment on USA Today Post, what everybody says. But basically, people who are already believers will look at that that letter to the editor saying the Bible's infallible and and human beings don't determine our – and everybody goes, well, that's another one of those Christians trying to say politics and Old Testament law are the same thing, and that gets dismissed. And so Gen Z is much more likely to dismiss an argument from the Bible than previous generations. And so we're going to have to approach it differently. You're not going to argue on what the Bible teaches about you know, uh, uh, about um, what you do with your body. You're not going to argue with that. You're not going to say to a Gen Z person, hey, you shouldn't you shouldn't be sleeping around. Uh, sadly, the woman next to me was watching The Bachelor <laughs> on the airplane, and we were stuck on a delay. So I so we floated for an extra 45 minutes. So, you know, there was The Bachelor, and it was all... Um, transcribed underneath and it was the religious guy on there getting beat up by everybody and uh, you know the woman he decided not to marry said i'm tired of slut shaming and the point of it is you know you can't tell her you can't control her you're trying to control her and i think i think the guy was a bit of a doofus in the name of jesus on that show and um, i don't know that jesus wants to claim all of his behavior and he admitted that he didn't want to claim all of his behavior and people in the know say they use a lot of alcohol to help them act differently then um it's not scripted but it's alcohol infused in their behaviors to get interesting episodes but the point of it is the people in the show were all like you can't tell a person who you can sleep with well the point and she even said well jesus doesn't well, no jesus told you not to.
1: i think she comes on i, I my wife watches the show. we may have to edit that out car right <laughs> um I think she says oh, um, <laughs> Jesus still loves me. I think she goes, yeah. Yeah. you know, I slept with whoever, and Jesus still loves me. And and my my wife, who is very theologically sound, says that's great, but Hannah, do you still love Jesus? <laughs> and so, but I, I agree because we have we have Gen Zs in our house. We we can't go well. The Bible says, and it be the standard anymore. So so how do we, especially working on a college campus? Rob, who's usually here's the campus pastor. How do we engage Gen Z millennials from a scriptural standpoint and help establish biblical truth without just going, because the Bible says so.
0: Right. Like what becomes the new standard? Like what becomes the new way to.
2: Well, let me be really, really clear before you have to edit all this out too. Um, Let me be really, really clear. The Bible is still the standard. It's not the standard to Gen Z. Okay. And so um, I think the, uh, you know, I'm a geek on the treadmill today. I was reading a, uh, I was reading the introduction to uh, a commentary on John, and they said it really well. The you know Luke had to divide up his single book like Lord of the Rings. It's too big, so for one big book, so it didn't fit in the scrolls. So we have a whole second scroll on the history of the church, the work of the living Christ, because um, you know when they were talking to Jews, they referred to a lot of scripture. Now, it was fascinating to me when I was in seminary and learned that Luke has more Old Testament references than any other gospel. Matthew makes his a front and center. Yeah. Weaves his and his allusions. He uses Old Testament words to refer to things without actually calling references out like Matthew did. So the point is, Luke knew what it was like to have to interact with people who didn't take Old Testament seriously as Scripture. And um, so in the book, I suggest this. If you want to you teach young people um, what God teaches us to do with our bodies, and um, uh, uh, my exercise would be to do it without using any scriptures. Because most sins have their consequences built right into them. Now, sometimes God strikes a person down. And I love, you know, the King James Version does some smiting. You know, but, but God's smiting is often just the natural consequences of our dumbness. That's true. And so most sins, most sins have their punishment in seedling form built in, and they simply grow. The, co- the consequences, the punishment for those sins simply grow out of the sins themselves. And, you know, it didn't take long with a house full of millennials to have, it didn't take long for them to go, oh, yeah, man, their lives are all messed up. And they would make those comments. And then those became what we all heard were teachable moments when we were, um, um, and it, it's not that they weren't learning scripture, it's the, the uh, for the Gen Z's that aren't Christians, so the Gen Z's that are the nuns, in N-O-N-E-S, um, the Gen Z's who had the highest percentage of atheists, in Barna's more recent research, and the highest percentage of people who believe that while the Bible's, you know, while the Bible's a good book, a lot of religions have good books. So we need, we, we need to do similar to what um, the second half of the book of Acts is all about. It's about communicating to people who you where you're not quoting scripture. And most of us are just out of practice at that because we, um, we lived in a nation that was more like the first half of Acts. You could quote a lot of scripture and people may not like it, but um, even blues musicians um, played Sunday morning before they went to the bar and played Sunday night.
1: So, you're a millennial, and you engage with millennials, and I would presume not everybody in your circle is a faith-based person. Right. Um, What are you seeing in this conversation? Can you engage your friends with Scripture, or is it more of an allusion to the principles? Um, How do you go about that in your life?
0: Yeah, no, I I would agree with that, absolutely, because, you know, you – people tune you out like you were saying people tune you out if you're if if all of your arguments are like well the bible says the bible because you just sound like you know th- people associate that with something that they're that's really negative um and whether that's you know you're oh, hyper part. right whether that's like you're hyper conservative you know yeah. like um protester or whatever that's what people associate you with and so i think it a lot comes down to you know as cheesy as it sounds, like lifestyle and then from lifestyle, like referencing and alluding to scripture without being like, and the reference can be found at.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you are more Lucan and less Matthew in your approach to using the Old Testament. Both of them thought the Old Testament was the definitive um, um, explanation of the life of Christ.
1: But so they did for their reach. Would it be yeah? Would it be fair to say we when we talk about scripture, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all had sort of different audiences that they were writing towards. Yeah. So as churches, as pastors, we have to be aware of our audience and maybe communicate differently to that audience to convey the same message. Is that kind of what we're driving at now?
2: You have just circled back to your first question, which is what do we do with five? <laughs> So in the book, I talk about four churches, four choices. Matter of fact, when I talked with and when I was down there in uh, um, Orlando talking to uh, uh, the General Assembly of the Church of God, uh, what five years ago or so now, one mm-hmm. of the things I covered well, here are the four churches that here are the four choices that churches have in dealing with these generations, and it won't be one size fits all because just like we have four gospels, um, it won't be one audience fits all. We needed more than one message. From more than one audience and um, you know there's a passage in Romans where Paul says "Um, you need to quit judging each other to his own mastery stands and falls I think that applies to churches because what will happen is if somebody believes that this is the right method for our church and for our audience they then can sometimes get all wound up on blogs or at church conferences acting like everybody ought to reach that audience in that way and so it's illegal to put, um, it's illegal to put, you know, like um, soul off or other, anti, uh, other sedatives in people's coffee in religious conferences. But I think some of the saints probably need a little medication just to take the edge off when they get all wound up over thinking Matthew's the best gospel. And that's the only gospel that'll get the job done. We got to do Matthew, got to do Matthew. Instead of this church may focus on millennials and Gen Zs which means they're going to slow down the music. The irony is, my son's a millennial worship leader. He's like, you know what? Fast music is not, fast, mu- fast music is boomer and extra friendly. <clears throat> Millennials slow down worship music. And and it's so funny. I, um, I was coaching with a wonderful charismatic, independent charismatic church. At the, when I was interviewing everybody, they're like, we love our young worship minister. We love him. But that boy has to play some fast songs. He's so boring. I thought my head was going to pop up after all the years of boomers and Xers fighting with traditionalists over fast music in the house of the Lord to hear hear the older generation complaining that the younger generation wants slow, thoughtful music. I thought my head was going to pop right off my shoulders consulting with that church. Well, the fact is boomers are like, yeah, we got to have anthem music. It's got to be loud, and we got to be up, and we got to be raising our hands. And millennials are like, "Well, worries our hands, but let's slow it all down. Let's mellow out. And um, so we can't pick the same music. We can't say it the same way. We can't pick the same music. Older generations are going to be, I don't think he's preaching the word. I don't think he's preaching the word. We haven't heard enough scripture. Younger generations are like, really? Really? You're going to go bashing on, and you'll have some listeners here who'll be mad at me. You're going to go bashing on science and scripture, and this is why I don't go to church. Because what Barna discovered is 25% of of millennials who have left the church left it because they think their church is naive about how to explain science and scripture. Uh 25% have left because of intellectual reasons.
1: That's that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. So – in the book, you, you list three options and that I really liked of, of churches. One of those was you change now because we need it. The other is that you die or you, you grow old together and then leave the church to somebody. And then the third was almost like a myth. You said you can try to reach all five generations, but it's not going to happen.
2: Just like I illustrated, you pick a music and you pick a generational target without even meaning to. Well, you know, I want to, I want a worship service that reads all generations. Okay. Well, as soon as you pick a music and your minister puts on clothes, you've just sent out messages of who you, who you're reaching. So if he comes out in jeans and an untucked shirt, you just send a message. And by the way, that's a different message than shorts and an untucked short sleeve shirt, uh, which is a different message than being in Dallas and wearing one of those tie. I work out a lot. Um, Metro shirts, that's a whole different um, target market and angle that you can take, and it's quite effective there, although nobody wants to see that on uh, on on my Santa belly. Anyway, the um, point of it is, as soon as you pick a music, as soon as the minister puts on clothes, as soon as you choose your greeters. So if you've got a 68-year-old person as a greeter, that's a different message to a family. If you've got a young family with young kids greeting people, that's a different message. It's one of the reasons why it's hard to juggle five chainsaws. It's hard to juggle five generations. Whatever you do for one tends to make the other marble fall out the other end of the pipe. How's that for changing analogies right there without breathing?
1: So how do you give, how do you give churches permission to change?
2: I give you permission to change. I give you permission to pick a generation and I deny you permission. How's that? I'm almost Pope-like now in my. uh, (laughs) my Pope Hayden is Right There we go. The uh, generational Pope. I have no. There's the
0: white smoke right there. It's (laughs) it's time.
2: It's yeah. Only, only on generations. uh, Because the research on this is really clear. You said it so well. If you want, if you want to goof this up, you'll still get to heaven. Jesus will still love you. He will also say, you should have thought a little more about this, Um, we're gonna reach everybody. We're not gonna be selective. You will reach people like yourself. That's the irony. When we reach everybody, we reach people like ourselves. The only way to reach people different than ourselves is to understand them and go after them. I loved it when I ran into a guy at a church conference who said, our whole church just read your book and then we're just doing it step by step. We went out in the community and we just started asking people who don't go to church who are younger, what don't you like about churches? And now we're making adjustments. We use all kinds of media now. We've changed the music. We do more community outreach and less traditional evangelism. And we're getting younger. So they said, we're not, they're not like us. We have to go figure out who they are. We have to figure out how they think. And we have to figure out how they're going to adjust. And you know what? In order to do that, they're going to have older families that go to some other church that is predominantly more like them. And that's a choice you have to make. Are you willing to have older families leave if you're going to try to get younger? And if not, what are you going to do for those older families? I was just talk. I think one of the most helpful parts in the book is I was just talking to a church where they, he said, yeah, we're having, you know, we get some really frustrated older generations. I said, did you do any, did you plan what you're going to do for your older um, families before you started planning how to reach younger families? No, mm-hmm. no wonder you ticked them all off. They may want to reach the younger generation, but now they feel like after 40 years, it's not my church anymore. They have been put out to pasture, and you did not have a plan for them. You were disregarding part of God's flock in order to go out and reach sheep that aren't reached. Both are important. Take a moment, and think it through. That's why I wrote the book, so that families would know better what to do with their kids, so that people who lead small groups would know better what to do with all the generations and their spiritual strengths and weaknesses, and so that leaders, denominational leaders and pastors, um, board members, elders could just do a whole lot better job at thinking through the things that need to be thought through.
1: Yeah. I mean, the book's great. I, I know we have the spine showing on the, on the camera, but if I flip it over, there's about 40 tabs of those little sticky tabs where I've just marked everything I could, especially as a person who has a heart for millennials and Gen Z's and and the book really doesn't quite get to the Gen Z conversation, um, you focus more on the millennials, but I I, it, I still struggle, Hayden. I mean, just in, in transparency, that it feels like a lot of churches are trying to hold on to what they were, and think they can reach somebody new. Um, how do we? You know, how do we? I think, that, I, I
2: think that is an indication of the struggle of giving birth.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I. I'm gonna to have to give up my old life. I want this baby, but I gotta give up my old life. How many couples have tensions because they have to redo it? I, I have a new grandson, he's two weeks old. My granddaughter goes from being delighted. I have a brother, brother. I love my brother. Two, um, I would like him to go in the closet because I want my parents back. <laughs> right? It's We all go through the same kind of thing. And um, one of these days we'll get to heaven and Jesus will say, I want you to know I died for that younger generation. I really am glad you got to have the music you like and the way you like to do church. Mm. But I am really unhappy that you did not leave the 99 and go out in search of the one. I'm pretty unhappy that you did not pay attention to those scripture verses. So, in yeah. the book, I give a whole list of options for churches that decide they just can't do it. And not all, I, I, in my experience, only about half of churches can reach millennials. Yeah. I worked with a church in Tennessee, consulted with a good church in Tennessee that really wanted to reach younger generations. And when I watched their senior minister interact with different generations, it became clear to me that they should not. They were awkward, stilted conversations. Now, when he talked to people who were over 45, it was natural and flowing and they loved him. When he tried to talk to younger generations that didn't click. now they had a choice. They could either find a different pastor or they could focus on who they could reach. I worked with the I worked with the Methodist Church I talk about in the book that wanted to reach kids, but because that's they were a big kid church when they were when when they were raising kids, but the whole demographic of the place had changed. The houses were too expensive, and young families couldn't afford to live there. They were when they got their demographic report, they were sixty five percent boomers. Their field was boomers, and they were trying to farm one clean one little corner of it because there were kids and they always thought we wanted to build a Christian education building and now we finally have enough money at this stage in life to build the gym we always wanted for our kids. Well, figure out what your field is and what you're able to do and go do that and then take responsibility for what your congregation can do for millennials. So if your congregation can't reach millennials and Gen Zs, then you ought to be supporting new churches that can. You ought to be sending new churches that can
1: is this the ri- is this one of the reasons we see a rise in church planning in America?
2: We have to. I I'm a, I'm a, I'm a member of a big one of those big mega churches about 10,000 people and starting satellites. One of the, one of our satellites has a campus pastor who has shoulder length hair and um and a very large tattoo um, of his daughter's name on his arm. Now in a lot of churches that would be caused to physically take him to the barber, right? It would be kind of a, it would be kind of a Samson thing. I've been, I've been listening to, uh, I've been listening to, um, um, Old Testament lately, and it would be a kind of a Samson thing where he would be wrestled by the board and shorn. And, uh, then it would also be a, uh, uh, you better wear long sleeves, um, in the house of the Lord and repent from your previous life, which involved tattoos. And there, um, he wears them proudly, and a younger demographic says, "Pastor Richie's all right." Um, and because you, you've heard the old saw, a minute a, a church reaches about ten years, five years above and below the age of the pastor. Now, some pastors have learned how to use humor and how to use goatee or, or beard dye so that they can give themselves because you know the beard goes faster. They can give themselves some, uh, some some, greater youth, and they can hit a larger range. And some churches can create some powerful outreach programs, which, as I mentioned in the book, is usually with younger generations more missional yeah. and less attractional. Not always, but usually less missional, more attractional. It's more of that blend uh, than it was in the past. And, um, and we get after it. Um, so even if you're a church that decides to get older and and shouldn't re and can't reach millennials, not shouldn't but can't reach millennials or Gen Z, there's still a lot of things you can do. You can go volunteer in ministries that do. You can um, and as uh, you know, um, somebody asked me once, most important, most surprising thing you learned in your research that two texts a month, two text messages a month from a person from an adult, um, not a family member we'll cut the dropout rate between 19 and 23 and a half. Um, over 70% of people at stats are discovered drop out of church for at least a year between 18 and 23.
1: And I, this, I was blown away. I was blown away. I heard you say that somewhere else um, in another podcast or in the book. And as someone who, it, my, I lead a, a small group of millennials and Gen Z's. Um, that single statistic changed everything for me and how I thought about it. And then, Um, because one of the tensions that, that, that I wrestle with, with Rob who's usually here with me is, is we were on a Christian college campus in a Christian college setting with kids who don't go to church. And so our whole conversation with the podcast started, why are they not going to church? Um, and so that single statistic, I thought, well, that's, that's vital. If someone's reaching into their life, who's older than them and Shay says, Hey, I care about you you know, I'd love to see you here. And it was eye opening to me.
0: Yeah, I think that that, you know, in my experience has been so my dad's a pastor. And like growing up, if there was like, you know, a big thing that they were trying to push for like a big outreach event or whatever, you know, they'd send out those little like, postcards, essentially, and you know, whatever. Well, my wife, Abby, and I have recently, right after we got married, started going to this new church down here. And um there was this big event coming up a few weeks ago and i got a text from the pastor that was just like hey like this is the you know and it was probably just a your generic like copy and paste text but it was something about like that moment you know made me you know as a millennial like feel very seen feel very wanted and like felt like i was a part of something that mattered you know not just like you know i didn't i don't just come in and sit there it feels like i'm a part of it which was which was a really I mean, we went and, you know, it's like since then, it's like, you know, I've felt more involved and things like that because of like that involvement.
2: I don't have anything to add to that other than, than, as I recommend in the book, we stop immediately. So I want to give you all permission, all your listeners permission to stop immediately ending youth group, youth ministry at 18 when they graduate. Youth ministry ends at 23, and what's great is, I've, you know, uh, some churches have actually followed that, and they're trying to, they're, they're figuring out, what do we do? Youth ministry ends at 23, because that gets it through the danger period, statistically, not 18, which is at the beginning of the danger period. We stop providing resources when it gets dangerous. I wonder if there's a connection between adults that take seriously young people's Following up on young people, but out of sight, out of mind, and, and of course, our brains are just geared that way because the school system set up that way. Yeah. Okay, so you get a high school sponsor who knows these kids, and you and I know it's hard, and for a lot of lot of smaller churches, are like it's hard to find people who are willing to go uh, with the youth. Okay, roll one of them off, and they just they are the text messaging people who follow up on them. How are things? How is school? Um, have you found a church yet? campus ministries and universities, or even at Lee University, go and visit people, visit young people who go, yeah, I know I should, I should, I should. And it didn't have nearly the impact of somebody back from their home church saying, have you found a church yet? No, I really haven't found because, you know, if you came from a really small church where everybody knew everybody, you go to a church and you're like, yeah, it doesn't feel like that. You know, it's a city church. And if you're from, uh, uh, you know, one of the big mega churches that are playing that funky music, and then you get into a little small church where they're doing hymns, and everybody's dressing up, you're like, Oh, I think I'll stay in bed. And that's a natural trans, it's a natural transition point that even Lyle Schaller, the great church sociologist, pointed out 40 years ago. However, it's gotten worse. And um, um who would have known that two text messages a month will cut that in half.
1: That's that's phenomenal.
0: Yeah, I mean, I didn't, you know, like I, I was someone who you know, throughout my time as a student here at Lee, like took my, you know, faith seriously and took, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I cared about it. And yet, like, I can probably count on both my hands the number of times, you know, the number of weeks that I went back to back to church, you know, like I was consistently in church. And part of that was the only people ever asking me about it were my parents. And so then there's like, just this dynamic of, Uh I'm like, oh, you know, I'll get there. And then I would just, you know, it's it's whatever. It just is on a list of things that they talk to you about. And so, yeah, I think that that would have made a, a major impact. It was like someone that I respect and care about outside of the family unit, you know, reaching out in that way.
1: So so there's an element. You it really of-
2: well because you love your parents, but it's your parents.
1: Right. Yeah. So, so I think there's an element of being known by somebody else, somebody else right. knowing you and caring for you. Because I think we all want to be known. And I think that's significant where somebody goes, hey, I care enough to check in. Um, and, and that seems to make, from your research, makes all the difference in the world to keep them in church.
2: If you think about it, it's the relationship that matters. And, and why didn't you go when you were in college? Well, sometimes it's because you're you know, young and sleeping yeah. in felt good. But often it's because I don't know anybody there. I go and then I leave. And now, quite frankly, with video church, if I'm gonna experience a church service, I'm gonna go talk to nobody and then leave, why don't I just sleep in and do that online? And um, so that's become an alternative to it and relationships become even more important. But the relationships we had are far more powerful than the relationships often churches Um, try to do. Now, the church I grew up in was in a college town. It was even in a religious college town, and they would, from time to time, try to do outreaches, and they're like, we're we're not able to get the, we're not able to get, you know, a lot of college students to attend our church, and it's funny. They went to the other church in our denomination in town because it was a little more contemporary. It was younger. We were the older, more serious, big pipe organ church, and, you know, they were a little more funky music church. They got drums at least 10 years before we did in the house of the Lord.
1: So, so my question is if they're leaving and we know they're leaving from 18 to 23, the, the old presumption was they get married and have kids and come back with millennials and Gen Z's. Is that still a case or what are we seeing research wise?
2: Huge debate of all the topics that may be the biggest debate. Our good friends at Baylor, um, you know, they even they even took on in the Wall Street Journal took on Barna's research, and the Kinneman and the Barna group and said, yeah, I think you're reading the, I think you're interpreting, I, I think your sample just came back wrong. It doesn't match other larger surveys. You know, that women were leaving and that, um, uh, but they, you know, they they said, hey, I think this whole how do we reach millennials is overblown. I think we're it's a, t, a tempest in a t, eh, not, not quite that um, minimalistic. But the idea was, once they have kids, what's happened now is emerging adulthood means there's just a longer gap between leaving for leaving the home and having children and settling back down. Um, and they're going to come back. I think there are, but Christian Smith, another great sociologist, he said, you know, we're also beginning to wonder if a decade between if emerging adulthood changes the game, if a decade between marriage and when people drop out. And then coming back with kiddos, um, if the length of time creates new habits, where you're out, you're so far from the church habit. And let me go back to the thing that for a lot of a lot of my older listeners and a lot of folks that love the Bible, um, this one's just hard for them to wrap their head around. If you know, if you want other people to believe the Bible, so that you can talk with them. Gen Zs and millennials are not going to come back. If you want to convince people that the Bible is God's inspired and fallible word, before you can have a conversation with them of faith things, they're not going to come back to your church. You're going to have to leave Jerusalem and Samaria, and you're going to have to go to Athens with the Apostle Paul and change the way your church communicates. Um, or they're not. many of them will not come back. And um, that's, a, that's where the churches need to change. Even less about reaching younger generations, it's about what we put forward in communicating the message of, of scripture and of the gospel. It's what we put forward, it's not what we teach in discipling, it's what we put forward. In the past, first half of the book of Acts, we put our scripture foot forward. In the second half of the book of Acts, we put forward our ability to connect with common points with um uh, people in the uh, you know expanding missions of the church paul went first to the synagogue and then expanded and he changed what foot he put forward as he did it
1: so so it's much like the i think it's mars hill where he says the yeah. the, the the to the unknown god or whatever it is he, he mm-hmm. references the the uh I guess the city was in, but even even they had said, "Listen, we're going to cover all the bases, and we'll leave one unknown God just in case there's one more we miss." Mm -hmm. And Paul communicates that to them. So, so is that what we got to do? We've got to communicate at the space they're at,
2: friend. Couldn't have said it any better. Couldn't have said any better. Hey, I notice you're really religious. He starts off when they ask him to speak. I notice you're really religious. Point of contact. I'm religious too. Matter of fact, I noticed you've got, you've even got something to an unknown God. I'd love to tell you about him. And they were on their way. Now, some of them believed and some of them said, that can't be. Gods, gods don't take on bodies and get resurrected and resurrection bodies. That's crazy because many of them, you know, in that Hellenistic world, they were, they believed that you had to leave the body to get to go through many levels of development to get to perfection. And so the Jesus, the resurrected savior that you know, that Paul preached was like, that can't be right. Uh, but and we'll have the same conversations now when well, we begin the conversation. It's hard because some of our folks are like, I spent a lot of my life learning the Bible. I learned evangelism explosion. I learned the Roman road. Now what road do I have to learn? The conversational road. And so, in the book, I give some great examples of the questions you can ask for people, where um, they believe that hey, what's true for you may not be true for me, and even in our families, we're beginning to see young people who say, well, I don't know if I agree with all your assumptions, mom and dad, and then um, you know, mom and dad are, are reading the, the 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 um sorry jet lag. Are reading the birth narrative, are reading the uh, Christmas story. That's what I'm looking for, the nativity story, five times. So they got their unbelieving kids that visit for Christmas and they're like, hey, before we have a snack, let's pray and read Matthew. <laughs> and so finally the kiddos are like, I know what's in there. I don't believe it. Back off, mom and dad. And uh, we're like, I don't know what else to do except give them more scripture because you know, you can't, the word will not come back void. Raise them up, train them, train them in the way they. That... And so we overstate some promises. Uh, you know we also know that people make their own choices Remember what paul said hey we work with demons for years but he loved the ways of the world and he left us Hmm. and so point of it is the thing that for parents is so hard and that's what i think and it's hard i watch people cry when i talk about it in my presentations the hardest thing is that god gives us God gives us choice in whether or not we're going to follow him. And we often don't want to give choice to our kids because we can't imagine spending eternity away from them. And it is hard to be God-like in the way we approach our children and to say, I love you enough to allow you to make your own choice. And um, we often crowd our children and crowd them in such a way that we're so desperate because we don't trust God, that God is working. We're so desperate to reach them that we all, I, I compare it in the book to a stakeout where some, you know, hapless cop walks in there and blows six months of staking out because they won't quit reading the nativity story. And God's like, I've been working on this for a year and a half, which you just trust me a bit that I love your kids more than you.
1: That's a, a conclusion, Carter. I know you don't have kids mm-hmm. yet. I've got five at my house. Um, my wife sure. and I have had that, come to that conclusion a lot. And to, to trust that the Holy Spirit's doing the work when often we want to step in and, and do the work of God. And it's, it's an incredible tension. Um, I think it's also a tension in, in ministering to the young adults as someone who is. Because sometimes we just think, hey, I can fix it. Let me fix it for you, and often the fix is, "Hey, here's the Bible. Let me show you what the Bible says, and this mm-hmm. will fix it." Um, but what's true, Hayden, and, and what I think all of our listeners can take away from is, is we've got to move away from sermons and into conversations. Um, I think more than anything, and this is a and maybe you can back this up across generations. People just want to be heard. And they want to be able to engage and, and, and express. And so we can engage in conversations about the things of the Lord without being the Bible thumpers, without being the the just simply quoting scripture, but maybe being living scripture so people can see it. And maybe that's as much the game changer as anything that we walk through. Right. I think that, you know, you,
0: in referencing like Paul to the Greeks and the dynamic of like, you know, you call out, it's, it's not necessarily about scripture, but it's about like, hey, you are religious and like, it's good that you're religious and it's good that you care about things that are like that. And so let me, you know, essentially let me talk to you from how I also care about that. I think that, um, you know, like with millennials and then Generation Z, like so much of it is about like social justice and about like making major change in the world for the better. And so to kind of go into those conversations and be like, it is great that you care about that. And I also care about that. And then in those conversations, you know, kind of explain why you care about it, which is ultimately that, you know, God's in the renewal of all things. And and that's, that's kind of what we're a part of.
2: I, I, let's build on that for just a moment as an example and wrap this thing up. Cause I know you all, <clears throat> you all are like, well, we could talk about this all day. Um, and I can. And so you're like, seriously, we got other things we got to do today, dude, just <laughs> wrap it up. The, um, Social justice, if anything that scripture teaches us, it's that social justice is really hard with human beings because human beings in power often don't like to give up their power. And they'll Hmm. often do really interesting things um, to keep their power, even if it disadvantages other people. And um, more education or more legislation is important, but it won't fix that. And part of the challenge of doing social justice is just how discouraging it is when you work for 20 years and discover that two really powerful people who are corrupt can swing things in ways that, and it's discouraging. And so one of the challenges for Gen Z and millennials is not just all the, you know, the the back and forth tweets about whether or not tweeting does anything in social justice, and if you ought to quit tweeting and go do something, and that's an important conversation. The bigger conversation is 20 years from now, when it doesn't, when you don't see the progress that you want to see, what's going to keep you doing it? Well, What's going to keep you doing it is Jesus said to go do it. And Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men and died for them anyway. The big challenge with social justice, is social justice believe many people in social justice believe that if we could just turn the, turn the adjuster, just a half turn, we could fix this. And you know, what Jesus said is, Oh no, we got to get a whole new knob. Mm-hmm. This is all messed up. And so we just keep on doing it because the Holy spirit Calls us to do it, not because it, it it even works. What do you do with discouragement is really the biggest question, and I think the biggest question Christians are going to ask for people who care about social justice is, I wonder, you know, or, I wonder how what you're going to do with discouragement, or I wonder what you're going to do when other people strongly disagree, or, you know, or just as USA Today said in an editorial. Hey, Bernie Sanders, I don't think we're going to have Medicare for all because 100 million people are pretty happy with their insurance, even though it means that others don't have it. So I don't know that you're going to get the votes for that. Yeah. And so what do you do when you have a particular view? I'm not I'm not advocating one position or another. I'm just quoting the paper. But um, what do you do when you have a particular view of social justice and you work really hard on it and you can't get it to turn? Why would you keep doing it? Here. Ask questions. Yeah, I noticed that you're religious. I see that you have this. Hmm. And you begin to ask questions and have conversations, Um, even with your own kids who don't believe. Less preaching. The research is clear. Preaching does the worst. You said it. But preaching is the worst thing you can do with your adult children who are are not uh, right now um, committed to their faith. Worst thing you can do, questions and sharing your own story. I know. I know you and I don't see things the same way. But, you know, um, your story did involve a lot about your faith. My story is all about my faith. And I just have to tell you, I've had such a great month because of. There's no way I can be myself with my kids if they're away from their faith without talking about it. And I'm happy to listen to you talk about your life. But you know what? I'm going to talk about my life. I'm not going to preach. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to when the timing is right, and I'm going to talk about my life.
1: I think that's a great, a great place for us to end this conversation is, is to engage in the conversations with those around you. Less sermons, more conversations. Um, I think that's overlapping all, all generations. We have one final question we ask everybody who comes on our show. Hayden, um, we record here at the campus of Lee University. So we ask a college-based question. What is the greatest lesson you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom?
2: that Lori Ann Irvine was the love of my life. I don't know that we can cover
1: much more than that. That's it. That gets it. Uh, the book is Generational IQ. If you are a leader in any capacity, it is a must-read book. Um, you've got to pick it up. Where can they find the book at?
2: Well, Amazon, where all – and uh, any or, any of your online booksellers – um, and the fine folks at Tyndall House can sell it through uh, there. You can find it through them as well. Um, and if you want to know more about church consulting, I don't do, you know, I, I have limited uh, capacity for it. I work with about five or six churches a year. And um, if you want to know more about that, there's a website called ChristianityIsNotDying.com that talks a little more about the book and about the about kinds of things that I do for churches.
1: Okay, we'll connect with Hayden there. And as we always say at the Collectives Co podcast, you always have a seat at the table. Hayden, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Collectives Co podcast. Would you do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review and share this on social media so this content can reach other great leaders?